So if you could tell us your name, uh, your job title and what you do. Hi, um, my name is Nick, Nick Lee. Yep, two first names, really awkward. Um, I am currently a principal designer for a company called Meld Studios, who are a design studio out of Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, I also have my own small company, SBS Design, and I do some freelance work. So, um, yeah, applying myself as a designer every day. Thanks, thanks for coming, Nick. No problem. So we've got loads of, tons of questions to ask you. Mm-hmm. Because you're a man who experiences the water design at the front line. Um, you are a designer. What do you think? First of all, let's think about this idea of innovation and design, or innovation by design. What do you think innovation means to Meld? <laughs> Funny, we were having this discussion the other day. It wasn't with Meld, but it was with with some other colleagues. Um, we, we were discussing what's what's innovation. What's the description of innovation? And, and a guy, and you should look him up, uh, Jeff Melanson, um, he's a Canadian guy uh, in the creative arts space, bit of an innovator himself, uh, entrepreneur. Um, years and years of him doing it and creating companies and creating amazing change and outcomes in the arts industry. His take on it, so I'm going to steal Jeff's, it's not mine, is applied creativity. I like that. Innovation is not, not, not some lab somewhere, not some skunk works. I think we all think of it as 3M post-it notes, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I did a thing, uh, or I went off to write Java in a cave somewhere and came back with a new, new language, Java. But I, I think the creative element of design and methodological application of genuine creativity is what drives new outcomes, which is what innovation is. So yeah. I'll steal that one from you, Jeff. I've met Jeff. He's a good bloke. Tall guy. Six foot seven. Yeah. So he's done some wonderful work in Toronto, I think. That's it. So helping regeneration and uh, the sort of Toronto Bay. Absolutely. Area. Yeah, he's now working with Ottawa City Council. Uh, and as well as he revealed the other day, um, he's got a new film studio company. And uh, he said, have you seen The Mandalorian? And I'm like, what? Seriously? Of course I have. And he's like, oh, yeah, that was my kit. Like, uh, created all the virtual worlds and that. His studio's set up to... You know, I, I thought it was all filmed on location somewhere, but no, it's all generated. Super so, clever. So clearly when you talked about creativity, design you think plays a big part in innovation. Yeah. Particularly in MELD. Um, is there a particular design process that MELD follows? Do you do they, do they stick to a process of innovation at MELD? Definitely, and I think we're agreed here. It's probably not just Mel, but it's any good practitioner. Um, the British Design Council, Double Diamond, um, works. It's proved to work. It's good to follow it. It's good to stretch yourself around it. And yeah. um, it's fairly easy to communicate to a business, the client that you're working with, the team that you're working with, how it works, what it is, and to break it up into the component parts. So definitely Double Diamond. And that, So that's how you describe it to... And you introduce it as the Design Council Double Diamond, or do um, they introduce it as the I, I own gem, generally method? do. No, I <laughs> generally do, because uh, can't take credit for it. But yeah. once you start explaining what it is, uh, and you start using the, the simple language that a business wants to hear about outcomes, yeah, um, you know, you got to postulate and ask them: Do you want to make the right thing, or do you want to make the thing right, or do you want to do both? So once you can articulate that and put it together, it starts to make sense to people. So. Yeah, it's very, very useful. And and does the does the process change depending on the sort of client that you encounter? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, yeah. it's to what extent uh, you apply it. Um, Meld's work, um, to my understanding, because I'm, I'm relatively new, I'm the new 
um, Perth edition of Meld, um, is, is very much research driven. They've got a, a history and a heritage of deep research, so it's more make the right thing. Um, and they don't do so much of the make the thing right, which tends to be uh, product design. However, um, you apply that at whatever level you are working through and with. So um, when you're trying to design an outcome, they do policy design, organizational design, um, spatial design uh, project I did with them on redesigning a space. We had to make the thing right as well. So yeah. so the, the evidence that was identified and surfaced, the... Uh, the needs of the customers, uh, the expectations of the customers, all of that customer experience stuff was framed uh, at the end into the problem statement. What's the problem we're trying to solve here? And then the second diamond, the make the thing right, was, okay, that, that's all great. We understand it. What are we going to do about it? So you do still go into the second yeah, diamond. Yeah. You know, it's it's just the extent of the project, how far are we going to go here? So, so for that particular instance I'm thinking about, the idea was to provide a very rounded brief that gave then the interior architects and, and, and the project managers a real clear context and understanding of what they were making rather than just get some shop fitters in to throw some walls up and hope for the best. Yeah. <laughs> so presumably they're big projects then. Is that is that why you stick to this process model? Yeah, you can still do it at a micro level. Mm. Absolutely do it at a micro level. Um, yeah. I've you know, done a design sprint in 90 minutes. So you, you, you can still do it and you, as long as you are clear that you're moving through the process that you're surfacing some data trying to make sense of that data try to get something out of it take that forward into an artifact that you think you have a solution for yeah. make a solution test a solution what do we now know so yeah. you can still drive even the smallest of projects through it you can do it micro macro and that was a process model that you followed before you joined Meld as well yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've been doing it um, in terms of strategy design more recently. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the the company that I work with um, called Reinvention, just one of the companies I work with, that they, they had a moment where they realized that they'd spent, you know, two decades designing and helping companies develop their strategy, and it was very, very far removed from the customer. So how do you inject the customer into our intent as a company yeah. and where we want to go for the next three to five years? often just decided in a boardroom, isn't it? I mean, you know, based on external analysis and resource analysis, internal analysis, our own capability, and yet you know, the usual mix. But when you're exploring how do you execute and what you can do, that's where design comes into it because it's much more divergent space. Mm. So you can take things wider and instead of we're going to solve it by doing this for the next three years, you know, you actually go, well, we don't know how we might solve that. Yeah. So why don't we try X, Y, and Z? and then see what happens. So it opens the possibilities. And we've spoken about this before, about senior leaders in organisations, so whether, they're, whether they're clients <laughs> or whether they're within your organisation that you work for, um, you know, where you've been employed in the past. Do they get it? Do they understand what's going on with the design process? Oh, uh, look, I, I think that's the reality check of, of being a designer. It's one methodology in years and years of of, of, of scientific management, if you like. Yeah. Uh, you know, industrialized management, get some stuff made, get a product or a service delivered. Um, so you're always fighting against um, stakeholders. You're say fighting against, that's a strong term, balancing stakeholder and organizational needs yeah. with their intended audience, be it colleagues or customers. So it's complementary, right? If, you, if you're 
if you're playing too hard to the stakeholder side of the fence, you're only ever going to deliver on business requirements. And BAs do that, right? business analysts. Yeah. Where, where design comes in to, to kind of um, balance that out is by bringing the voice of the customer into things, by saying, and whoever the customer is, it doesn't matter. Uh, it can be an internal customer or external. But the point is we're actually going to listen to the people on the receiving end of the stuff that we're doing mm. and co-design with them, understand their needs, understand where we're going with this and see what we can actually make together. And, it, and uh, you know, organizationally, I tend to reframe it into their language to try and get it over the line. So I say things like, how do you know it's going to work? This thing, this project, this new product, this amazing new service you, that's been your pet project for the last five years. How do you know it's going to work? So use a design process to, to prototype it early, prototype it lean, take it out to market, test. Now what do you know? What can we do next? Mm. So yeah, I, I frame it as de-risking. Mm. You're de-risking an investment. Now you say that to an executive and the lights go on. You know, oh, This might save money because you're not going to go ahead and make something that you're actually not confident is going to work that well. So that's a good that's a good sell for a design process, whatever design process model you follow. You mm. say, well, actually, gives you the chance to try things out without costing you a lot of money. Precisely, it, yeah. it's R and D. It's the new R and D. Yeah, you know, and and what the design process has allowed us to do is to do that at varying levels of fidelity. Mm. You know, it's literally the napkin sketch. Yeah. You know, look, well, let's ask somebody about the napkin sketch before we proceed any further. Yeah. They need to put any more definition around it. I've just scribbled a thing. What a, how, people can respond incredibly clearly, even to the simplest thing, and often the simpler the better. And I, I just keep, you know, trying to play some numbers back. Um, for instance, so I use product design terminology, but inclusive design, which we'll get to in another edition, right? Um, if you design it right and inclusively the first time, and it works, and every user can use it, all good. If you don't, and you have to go back and fix it. I can't remember the exact number, but I've been told estimates are from a code point of view, it's going to cost you 20 to 30 times what it would have cost in the first place if you hadn't have designed it right. And then once it's in market and you're fixing it and you're rebuilding it, you might as well start again. So mm. it goes up exponentially. So again, the whole design methodology of go low, go quick, go simple, go dirty, get some feedback before you even commit to getting it polished getting it built which costs i mean look at the development costs of a software product it's it's tens of thousands hundreds of thousands then you're in market and you've spent money and you've probably thrown a marketing campaign behind it and sales and those costs are all sunk if the thing doesn't work you mentioned some metrics there um what kind of metrics do you think customers or clients expect you to measure design value by what what are they looking for? Are they looking for is it is it about pounds and dollars and every cents? time, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um look, it, it there's there's just there's only two metrics in the world. Growth or reduction. Is it gonna make me money or is it gonna save me cost? And that's it. They're the two metrics you've got to frame against. Um I I would like to try and develop better metrics around impact, around opportunity around mm. time because you know we, we keep sort of thinking about this um sort of references back but angry birds angry birds was the 56th version of angry birds by the time it actually made it to market right? and was a hit so somewhere along the line 55 pitches didn't make it 
So there was a lot of effort went into that. But then it was a mega hit, right? Mm. And I think you could probably have somebody, and this is where the metrics, I, I do find, I, I struggle with organizational metrics because it's always a quantity discussion. How many widgets did you make today? How many things did you do today? How much stuff did you, how much busy work did you spit out? Mm. Always wins the performance review. <laughs> tick, 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 tick. Oh, you've done 28 things today. Yeah, 28 ultra low value things that had no visible impact or change on my customers or business. Yeah, I did a fraction of one thing that in six months time might be a massive game changer. That should be the conversation. Mm quality versus quantity i think quality is is a an aspect that is lost so much in our frenetic busy world and you've probably experienced that in your previous roles as well where where that's very much about economics rather than you know customer satisfaction or even customer happiness which mm. is not necessarily always something you can measure with numbers it's smiles on faces and you know feeling positive about a brand mm. Is that something you think that you'll see more of in your new role in, 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 in Mel? Do you think you're going to be focused a lot more on human experience? And, oh, definitely, yeah. definitely. I think and we'll, we'll talk about that more when we get into discussions about ethics. But, you know, if it doesn't improve someone's um, support, service, life efficiency, if it hasn't made a positive net improvement, why are we even doing it? Yeah. I, I, I think... I'm hoping that in the next decade that'll really come to the surface as yeah. people think about um, they've actually woken up and realised we live on a finite planet. So we can't just keep pumping stuff out at a more and more frenetic rate just because we have automation and scalability and we can manufacture anything and everything, you know, um, million scale personalization, mass personalization. Yeah, great. So there's more stuff. Has it done any good? Has it improved anything? Has mm. it changed something for the better? Has it actually reduced impact? So I think if we begin to work within parameters and we work within boundaries, I think that's going to have a lot to say over the future of design. Mm. I'm always fascinated by the little stories um, that you pick up reading, you know, again, non-designy news or, or articles or what have you. But just with us discussing that, I just had a moment when I flash back to a story about a boat maker in Italy. They make these incredibly expensive, incredibly beautiful handcrafted boats. And I've seen one in the flesh in Italy, and they're amazing things. They're just straight out of some 1950s movie, right? But the makers of these boats, their metric is not how many can we make, how many can we sell. Their metric is how perfect is this object. And we will only make 60 a year. We'll never make more than 60. We won't make them bigger. We will just keep refining until they are the perfect millionaire's gliding machine for going around the lakes in Italy or nice. wherever. I'd like one of those. Oh, <laughs> they're, they're, they're just stunning examples of <clears throat> a beautiful product, you know, which is handmade, hand-sourced, sustainably sourced, where they get all the wood from, you know, the, the, you know, the company turnover is zero because everybody's been working there forever and they just keep getting better. Is a better object that's longer lived. Mm. And these things, you don't replace them. Mm. Once it's built, it's built forever until mm. such time as we don't need boats. So we mustn't forget that really, that when we think about design, we, we now at least, we think about the process, the model, the process model that we follow. 
But we mustn't forget these origins of design, which were about caring for the thing that we were creating. Mm. Oh. The craft of the of an object or a service yeah. or an experience. And um, what's, what's that index? I keep forgetting the name of it, but that happiness index or whatever it is, well-being index or something yeah. that they've been measuring yeah. for many years. But, yeah. you know, apparently it flatlined since 1971. Oil crisis. Apparently we had pretty much everything we need by 1971 microwaves, dishwashers, cars, aircraft to fly around the world. You know, beyond that, yeah. it's all getting a bit extraneous. I think the only thing missing out of that was was perhaps the internet, you know, digital yeah. connectivity, yeah. instantaneous connection. Yeah. We had it in the telephone, yeah. but now we've got it, you know, the internet's just a text form of the phone, arguably. <laughs> <laughs> Although it's one to many rather than one to one. But, yeah. you know, um, so if we have all this stuff, we can go places, we can do things, we can consume things, we can grow things. What's the purpose? This stuff that we're making, so right. these these services, these objects. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, it's a bit, I don't know, maybe it's a bit hippie-ish, but wouldn't you like to, to, to return to a form where design becomes more art? It becomes more permanent art or statements of art. You know, things just for, for the sake of them being stunning and having longevity and having permanence and having beauty. And, you know, there's not, you know, too many buildings that have that status. There's not too many places that have that status. There's not too many objects that have that status. Mm. So but just related to that, then, is there a project you've worked on in the past that you look back on that kind of design process you went through, kind of how you worked with potential customers, how you worked with a client? Uh, are there some examples of, or is there an example of where the process worked really well, where you were... You, f you felt satisfied by the end result and you think the customers did too? Oh, that's a challenging <laughs> one. <laughs> um, done lots of digital products in the last few years and they, they change really frequently. Um, do you know, I, th I think some of the best outcomes from design projects, so if I can use a finance industry uh, example, are where they didn't make it to market. Oh, okay of where we actually went through a design process and proved it wasn't necessary. That's a really good outcome. That it's is one, a good outcome. It, because, yeah. all right, from the company point of view, yeah. yeah, they missed out potentially on some revenue growth. But they also missed out and saved on operational support. Yeah. They suddenly got another product on their hands where they have to do something with it and maintain it for years yeah. and, and have documentation and support and all this stuff made to guarantee it and legal reviews and all this kind of stuff. So we saved them yeah. an effort, an overhead, by actually, you know, taking the prospective project and product to market and finding out that really it was a pet project yeah. and it should probably stay on the shelf. Much, much better to find that out. Find it out early. Yeah. And then, you know, not keep, you know, trying to inflate a dead horse, you know, by, by just continual marketing efforts to, to sell something that was actually never needed in the first yeah. place. Take great pride in seeing some of these yeah, things yeah. not eventually. That's great. That's really good. And what about the converse to that? So what about an example where you've gone through that process and you've ended up with a product that you're kind of least proud of? Or least proud think, of. Or service or I'll, something I'll, you think, oh, it shouldn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you one that, that pivoted wildly and proved um, the point of the design process again. So yeah. quite recently, actually, we worked with a school an elite school, one of the most elite schools, in certainly in Perth, um, very, very high-end. 
and um, they called us in to have a look at their vision and strategy for the next three to five years. They knew they wanted a change. They'd made the first step towards that change, which is culture, which is, you know, the old quote, culture eat strategy for breakfast. Yeah, nice one. Started by changing some of the key players and got rid of some of the old dead wood. And, you know, um, but at the same time that they did that, they took a gamble and went, all right, let, let's have a look at what we're planning to do. Because on reflection, each time we've done this for the last decade and we've brought some stuff to the table, it just feels like a minor, minor iteration of the previous one. Mm. Okay, it's the same flavor, but it's perhaps got a newer context, blah, blah, blah. Mm. So we started again. And we took them through um, the whole double diamond, did a, a, a design sprint, which blew people's minds to, to prototype policy and, you know, new subjects and scared them a bit, you know, to take them away was from Was that a number of hours or, or a day? Or? Um, it was over about five days, five separate days. Um, so it was a bit hard to start and stop, but, but we, we did it. And the amazing thing was we just watched design in action. And what they thought they wanted to do, they disproved to themselves, which was brilliant. So seeing it, um, seeing it visualized, seeing it expressed, having that formed into a hypothesis, having that formed into an experiment with an experiment canvas, taking it to their various audiences now in a school, of course not the kids, especially one that costs that much money, it's the parents, their outcomes, their expectations, that's an investment in their child to get a successful child. Um, and it's the colleagues as well, the teachers there, you know, if they've got to go through a, a change of culture from math and science and all the famous stuff that you know, mm. people succeed very highly at and to go on to this other weird and wonderful stuff at the periphery. So we ran it through the various audiences, pr prospective parents and et cetera, and all this gold came back. And the best thing for me, and this is the best thing about co-design, was, again, and I say it quite a lot, it's the lights go on in the eyes bit and we were, when we'd given them the prototypes and we'd asked them to go and test them without our support, just go into the wild, see what happens. When they were regaling the stories of what they found out and got back, you'd just see the lights go on in the eyes. And there was these oh my God moments like, this doesn't fly or this doesn't make sense. And so there was an awful lot of pivoting. And of the original five or six concepts, two, three died. And another one was created. We ended up with five pillars in the end, five strategic pillars that were really meaningful. And they were physical and they were curriculum and they were people development and they were all sorts of different things. So a real blend of, of services and products, um, but they weren't what they set out to be. And more interestingly, at the start of the process, we, we always ask people to um, have a vision. What, what's their future vision? Mm. And none of these things laddered up to their future vision. Do you get them so to they, draw that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we get them to do a speech. Yeah, you know, tell us what the vision is. You know, and what are you 60 using seconds. for the for the prototyping for them? They're they're doing lo-fi prototypes. Lo-fi, lo-fi. So you know, got them to you know did crazy eights. Got them to draw various different expressions of what this thing might look like and be. Got them to do um, story mapping. Got them to do all sorts of little minor techniques to just sort of bring the concept to life in a way that could be expressed so some of them did take visuals to talk the uh, the test participants through and others just took statements literally scripts we think that we should well you know in the hypothesis statement we believe that if we 
we will see, we will know this is true when, yeah. and um, otherwise X will happen. So yeah, they would yeah. read these statements out and literally ask for feedback. How do you feel about that? What does it tell you about this? How does it marry up with us as an organization? Does it make sense? Does it add to the story? You know, would, your, uh, would you be happy for your um, child to be participating in that? Is that something of the ethos that they want to be involved in? They got so much gold back. And seeing the big smiles and the lights go on and the willingness, and this is the best bit when you've got a good client, the willingness of the client to throw all that preconception and stuff in the bin and go, we've seen some entirely new things here and we want to go that way. Mm. We want to do it mm. uh, as just the most uh, delightful outcome. And so just finally, w working with a school in that instance, you're using the same methods, the same process, same the same approaches you would have used same thing. in the finance industry. Yeah, mm -hmm. Yep, completely applicable. And this is, it's a funny thing, I've, I've got a, um, a, a proposal we're working on at the moment with, with resources sector. And the first question is, have you ever worked in the resources sector? Mm -hmm. And my first answer is, that'll be why you keep repeating the stuff you've done before. Using the same people. <laughs> same people, solving the same problems in the same yeah. way. <laughs> and you expect a different outcome. <laughs> Isn't that the definition yeah. of madness? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely... You want new ideas, don't you? Yeah. And Fresh approaches. I, as a designer, you know, you, you've got to be able to confidently articulate that you believe this process is a method. It's methodological as, as it is scientific. Mm. That It's been proven to be applicable across a multitude of industries. I'm super keen to see it not work on something. But so far, certainly with products and services and with spaces, mm. um, uh, and with with strategies, with policy, I've seen it work with all of those objects. Whether it ladders up to the next frontier, which is wicked problems like climate change and democracy, mm. we'll see. But I'm fairly sure you'd still generally approach a problem in the same way. Yeah. How do we understand what the problem is? How do we gather as much evidence as we can? How do we then make sense of that and distill it into a bunch of opportunities? And then how do we execute on those opportunities? Mm -hmm. It's still a really simple framework. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I, I believe it can be applied to pretty much anything. Yeah. Um, th the question is always time and fidelity. How deep do you want to go? How much do you want to apply? And that is always dictated by budgets, which tickles me. <laughs> yeah. oh, just, are you going to spend another 1.2 million on that awful software, are you? But you're not going to put 30 grand towards the poor buggers who are going to try and use this thing. Okay. <laughs> we'll That's that great. So thank you for some insights there on um, some design methods in a context of innovation. We're looking forward to inviting you back for the next episode of Mastering Design. And uh, thanks again. Thanks for your time. It's been fun. <laughs>